Hello and welcome back for episode 30 of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. It's quite exciting to be releasing the 30th episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I started this uh, just under a year ago as a little hobby and uh, I thought I would just get a few episodes out and see where it goes. And um, it's been quite exciting, the journey, the uh, pleasure I've had to chat to so many fantastic dentists from around the world to connect with and uh, learn from and have the opportunity to build some friendships and um, have some lasting mentorship from people who I admire. So in this episode, I have Dr. Davey Allman, uh, who's a fantastic young dentist uh, based in the United States. He is, you know, an advocate and um, a connoisseur, if you will, of biomimetic dentistry. He grew up around it thanks to his dad, um, who is David Allman, who is also one of the main uh, you know, f- fathers of biomimetic dentistry. Davey Allman in this episode uh, kind of blew my mind, to be honest. Um, it changed the way I started practicing dentistry pretty much from the day after I recorded this interview. And uh, it kind of opened my eyes and, and understanding to what it takes to have you know, proper bonding protocol, long-lasting composite restorations, indirect restorations, um, all in under the umbrella of the biomimetic uh, philosophy of dentistry. Um, I'm a big fan of biomimetics. I think it is modern dentistry. It's something that I think we will be moving towards uh, more and more in the next coming years. And I think uh, it's one of those things that dental students in maybe 10 years will look back on and the way that we used to um, you know, the JV black classification of extending uh, for retention is going to be quite archaic, to be honest, uh, compared to what we can do with adhesive dentistry, with the chemistry and the biology and everything that's being worked on by so many brilliant people around the planet right now. So this episode with Davey Allman, um, I hope you guys enjoy it. I really certainly did. And uh, like I said, it really changed the way I started practicing dentistry and has made a big lasting impact on me. So I hope you guys get a lot of value from this uh, from this episode. Uh, for those of you who are based in uh, Melbourne, Australia, I have partnered up with uh, Dr. Varun Garg and Dr. Bharat Agrawal, and we are releasing the Newbie Dentist Study Club, which I'm quite proud of. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and now that I'm you know, going to be stationed in Melbourne, Australia for the next few years, I thought it was time to kind of partner up with some fantastic young dentists and get something off the ground. So the first event, which is uh, based around aesthetic dentistry, is going to be held on October the 29th in Melbourne. So uh, check out Facebook or message me on Instagram or on Facebook if you have any questions about the detail. Uh, tickets are available and they're selling fast. Uh, we have limited the attendance just to 30 people. So try and get on there before uh, we sell out to avoid any disappointment. I hope to meet you guys there. It'll be fantastic to uh, you know connect and network with some of the listeners of the show. Um, we'll jump right into the episode. I uh, hope you guys have some pen and paper ready because uh, there is a lot of uh, fantastic tips in here. And uh, Davey Allman, I'll link his um, Instagram account. And he sent me some papers. So I'll try and uh, attach those into the show notes as well for you guys for reference. Yeah, enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omid Azami. Yeah, that's perfect. All right, so if you're ready to go, um, I usually just like to start off with like a bit of your background just so we get to know you a little bit, sort of what your journey's been like through dental school. 
And uh, after that, I kind of want to just really like do a bit of a deep dive into like biomimetic stuff. I know, I know that's your area of expertise and uh, it'd be cool to just like Dude, buckle up, man. talk about a few things like that. So you came to the, you came to the right guy. Yeah, that's perfect. 2009, I accepted the University of Pacific, um, but there was a dental school opening up in Utah, very close to where I uh, grew up. And we, we were hoping that they would be more progressive as far as uh, how they're, they approach restorative dentistry. So kind of getting away from GB black and, yeah. you know, really embracing some of these biomimetic principles that can really benefit the, uh, the patient. And so I got wind that they were going to open up the school in, in 2010. Okay. You know, some inside, insider information from yeah. you know, some of it was on the board. So I turned down my acceptance to university of Pacific, you know, they really love nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> It's like if you're if you're if you have a relative that went to UOP, you're you're in. You're basically going to get. <laughs> it's like the accepted. legacy and like sororities and uh, frats and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm not all about that kind of stuff. Yeah. That was, but anyway, yeah. But it ended up being 2011 that the school actually ended up opening up. So I had a two year hiatus. I worked with my dad as a dental assistant and helped him, you know, teach courses to 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 dentists. Yeah. So you're pretty well prepared going into dental school. You kind of knew pretty much. <laughs> like being well prepared is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. You can know too much and then you've got this huge bullseye on your back. Oh yeah. Dental school soon becomes the longest four years of your life. So you started off in uh, Utah, 2012? 2011. So Roseman University of Health Sciences. Okay. I was in the first class and so there's always some good things and some bad yeah. things being in you're the, the you're the guinea pigs they're trying to figure out the curriculum and and how things kind of work <laughs> so you finished up in so i guess 2014 2015 15 okay so you've been out for about like four three or four years now and like we were talking beforehand you said you sort of up with the military so is that something that you knew all along you were gonna gonna do is that something that you had planned ahead for or is it kind of just, it came about um as you started dental school well you've experience it dental school can get kind of expensive right yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so you know my dad when he went to university of pacific it was a lot cheaper then but he did the navy route and so he did a military payback you know year for year and you know it was a good situation for for him and our our family i wasn't born when he was in dental school but i kind of knew that that was a a good way to to pay for dental school so when I got yeah. accepted to UOP, I went through the paperwork, decided, you know, let's have the military pay for pay for it. I ended up, you know, withdrawing my application uh, before I actually withdrew my application from UOP. I, they flew me out to San Antonio, and I was a little off put by how much they were spending on me f- just for a physical. They, like flew me to you know the state of Texas, yeah, to give me a physical, and I'm just like, dude, I'm an I'm an econ like an economics major. So like the cost benefit analysis was like, this is is outrageous. Why would anybody do that? Yeah. Yeah. I said like the army wasn't for me then. And then, you know, UOP wasn't for me then. Yeah. And then, you know, two years later I get into Roseman, they, they accept me and say, Oh, it's going to be roughly $400,000 over the four years. I'm like, that's "That's a lot of money. money." (laughs) So I told my wife, so I'm so I just say, well, I'll just go and see what the recruiter says. Yeah. They had all my paperwork from the two years before. And so I'm like, sweet. If I don't have to do all the paperwork again, let's just throw it in. And 
if I get the scholarship, we'll we'll play Army. How are these um are these things like competitive? Like, is there a lot of den- like dental students who apply and don't get it, or is it pretty much if you want to do it, you you pretty much? I think can it's do a it. lot more competitive now. I think yeah, you know, a lot of with the tuition going up and everything are pretty aware of you know the price tag. That yeah. being said, certain branches of the military are more competitive. So the Air okay. Force, they only were giving out like two year, three year scholarships. Yeah, and so I was like. They're not going to pay for all of it, whatever. <laughs> you know, the Navy, I almost drowned as a kid when I was like 12, 11 years old, 10 years old. Yeah. So like being around a body of water wasn't necessarily my idea of how I wanted to die. Yeah. <laughs> so it only left me with the Army and the Army was giving away like a, you know, a nice little signing bonus if you got the four-year scholarship. And, nice. You know, I had good enough grades and a good enough dat score that, you know, I was competitive, got it. You know, I'm really grateful for it, but you know, there's some days that I'm just like, yeah. And um, so what's the commitment like during dental school? How many sort of hours a week or a month uh, you have to commit to like being on base or training or all that kind of stuff? I think it's different for every situation, but for me, yeah. it was the commitment was zero. So nice. <laughs> inactive ready reserve. And I, yeah. I grew out my hair to, you know, shoulder length, nice uh you know grew a beard that kind of stuff and i knew it was gonna all be be cut away i wouldn't be able yeah. to live, live the dream of a of a beach bum right <laughs> so. and then so uh, since then so um now that you've finished up school you've been out for you know obviously like three or four years so have you been sort of stationed in one base this whole time or you've been moving around a little bit? Tell me a little bit about what that, what's been like since you graduated. So one thing that I would recommend that anybody that's in the military is that if you're not going to do a one-year AEGD to yeah. try and get to a small base or overseas. Because if you can do that, you know, you just have a little bit more, you know, f- freedom as far as what you're uh, – able to to provide as the as the provider you're not necessarily just pigeonholed into you know doing you know exams all the time like there are some situations where you get stationed in at a large military installation and you'll be doing exams for new recruits you know three or four days a week just eight hours of exams and so you're really not doing any you know clinical dentistry yeah and if you're at some other larger installations that have AEGD programs, you can get some of that work can get like diverted towards exactly. that program. It gets, yeah. gets diverted to, to the, to the residents and you kind of get, you know, you're a little, little lower on the totem pole. Yeah. So I guess it's similar to like private practice in the sense that if you're working rural um, or like in a small base, like, like you, like you said, um, there's less dentists around, there's less, people around that you got to compete with to kind of get procedures, right? So those a little bit more on your shoulders. You can kind of, within your comfort zone, kind of grow a bit quicker that way. Uh, I guess that seems to be similar for you as well. Exactly. And so you yeah. kind of do what you really like to do and what you want to get better at. So as long as you have a good mentor, you know, you really could, you know, really do a lot of wisdom teeth and become really proficient at that. Yeah. Or, you know, I really like to do operative dentistry. So, you know, there's, and nobody likes to do that. I'm weird. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> awesome, man. So let's um, let's talk about. I mean, 
I was happy to have you on the podcast today, but um, obviously your work with like uh, biomimetic dentistry, restorative dentistry, there's a lot of, you know, Instagram pages and everything like on that topic, uh, a lot of, and it's an area where I think it's not like implants or like, you know, surgery or even like uh, CEREC and indirect restorations with direct restorative, like it's something that everyone should be able to do if they put in the time and do it. And it's something that we all do day in, day out, obviously different levels and different success rates and different longevities and everything. But um, I think it's a very useful topic, biomimetic dentistry for especially new grads, which like the target of the podcast here is. So if you wanted to maybe just, and obviously, like we mentioned before, your dad's sort of, uh, you know, one of the early guys in this whole space. And so you had a really early exposure to it and, you know, running the courses and everything too. You got a lot of repetitions even before uh, dental, you went into dental school. So how do you, how do you want to kind of uh, tackle this situation? Do you want to maybe just start off with giving me like the, like the overarching like philosophy of what biomimetic dentistry is, and then we can kind of dive in a little bit more and talk about the certain points and topics a little bit deeper. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, yeah. So I think everybody implements biomimetic dentistry in some aspect of their clinical practice. Okay. Now, I think eventually the word is going to become a buzzword like, you know, I'm a cosmetic dentist. Yeah. But the question that I always ask is, do you still cut teeth down for crowns? And if the answer is yes, then I would say you're not a true biomimetic dentist. Yeah. Now that's going to rub some people really wrong. The people, <laughs> you know, people get really excited about, you know, zirconia crowns or Emax yeah. crowns or I don't think people get as excited about PFM crowns as much, but, you know, <laughs> but anyway, anytime that you're cutting tooth structure away for retention, you are weakening the tooth, you're weakening the restoration. And as the tooth is in function, it no longer behaves like a virgin tooth. So the whole idea of biomimetic is mimicking life, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. there's nothing better than the intact tooth. And so if I can restore a tooth and regain its structural integrity through proper adhesive protocols that adequately stress reduce the restoration, then that you can basically stop the dental uh, death cycle. So, yeah. I mean, imagine if every dentist was pro really good at cl doing cl class two restorations. How much endo would you see later on? Yeah, it'd be reduced by a lot. If it's not leaking at the margins, uh, if there's no voids or anything like that. Yeah. So typically a tooth will go from a small filling to a bigger filling, you know, you know, maybe to a crown and then endo through the crown and then a new crown. And then, you know, there was an undiagnosed crack and the tooth ended yeah. up having to be extracted. And then, you know, you're stuck with an implant. Yeah. And so the restorative cycle. It's a restorative cycle. And if you can stop this early on, you've basically done this huge service for this patient and eliminated 70% of the dental work down the road. Yeah. So the question is, how do you do that? How do you keep a tooth properly sealed and properly bonded? I don't think a lot of dentists understand that. Yeah, they all think sure. that their bonding system is perfect. <laughs> you know, their their restorative technique is perfect, and in you know four to six years, they're redoing their work, and it's more aggressive. And you know, eventually, you know, they get 
CE training on how to do implants and they're really excited about placing an implant or doing the endo. For me, I've never placed an, imp an implant. You know, I've done some endo, but I prevented a ton of it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. But if you can prevent it, I mean, how much nicer is that than trying to do something heroic later on? For sure. It's more predictable early on always than to kind of like manage the situation as it arises down the line, I think. Exactly. So with biomimetic dentistry, the whole idea is to do the minimal amount of dentistry necessary for the tooth. Yeah. Doing that, we're trying to re regain the, the biomechanics of the tooth and the restoration complex. Okay. So, all right. So that's great. So let's, um, if you don't mind, let's start with, I guess we'll start with bonding. Um, that's, you know, where all this pretty much starts. I think longevity, the success rates, uh, post-op sensitivity issues. There's so many different bonding systems. There's so many different, I mean, I I'm, I'm someone who's like tries to keep up with these things like through Instagram and, you know, through, uh, talking with people like you and like asking questions. Um, but even now, like I'm there's so many, like, you know, do you total etch, do you selective etch? Like how long do you apply the primer for? How long do you put the bond on for? What bonding material do you use two bottle system or like, um, there's so many different variabilities and, and that's where I think most dentists, they even associates still come into a practice and they'll use whatever's in the office. Yeah. Whatever is there. Exactly. Okay. Um, the, the principal dentist does total etch with like scotch bond. I'll do that. And then let's see how things go. Uh, <laughs> So let's, let me, let's, uh, let's talk about bonding. It's up to you. I mean, how deep and, and thorough you want to get into it. I'd love it if you can go as thorough as, you, as you're comfortable going. I mean, in. you brought up a really good point. A lot of dentists coming out of dental school, you know, they're only exposed to one bonding system and that's whatever the manufacturer gave to the school. Now, hopefully your yeah. school has a good relationship with the, with a good manufacturer. And I think I've listened to enough yeah. of your podcast that I know that you had SE bond uh, in dental school. Yeah. Now, that's way better than yeah. what most dental schools in the United States have available to them. And so they come out and they think, Oh, Optibon solo is just as good as Optibon FL. Yeah. And I shake my head <laughs> or they'll say, Oh, I've got a self-etching primer all in one universal system. It's just as good as SC bond. Yeah. And I'll shake my head and say, yeah, yeah. no, it's not. <laughs> But this idea that bonding is simple is completely false. Bonding is difficult. Bonding to enamel is easy. Whenever you have something dry yeah. and you're you know, bonding something that's you know, hydrophobic, that's easy. But as soon as you're dealing with a wet surface, it becomes a little bit more challenging. And so yeah. before we talk about you know, dentin and enamel bonding, I would like to just talk about dentin and enamel. So with, so with enamel, what's the inorganic percentage? It's like 95%, correct? Yeah. Now with dentin, those numbers vary depending if you're talking by weight or by volume, but it's the critical number is it's 50% inorganic. And so you have, you have a big, big jump, jump of your bonding to proteins and collagen and that kind of stuff. Whereas with enamel, you're just bonding to, you know, hydroxyapatite. And so yeah. if you understand this, then you can understand what I'm looking for in an, ad in ad in an adhesive. So yeah. the big breakthrough was the molecule HEMA, 
which allowed for you know a hybrid layer to form. So everybody with every kind of bonding system has some kind of etching system. So either that you would do a phosphoric acid etch, which would be a total etch system, and yep. or you would do a self-etching primer, primer, which is a little less aggressive, but it still denatures the the collagen fibrils and the hydroxyapatite crystals that are uh, encapsulating the um, you know those bundles to the point that you can get resin infiltration. So the resin inf infiltration yeah. of this decalcified layer is termed as the hybrid layer. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you can keep the seal, that's the most important thing. So Omid, it seems like you like take good care of your hair, right? Yeah, I try to. Yeah, you try to. <laughs> try to. Not me so much, right? <laughs> but anyway, like people that are really serious about hair care, you know, they'll usually do shampoo and conditioner separate bottles, right? Yeah. You know, maybe they spend $60 on their conditioner. <laughs> or if you're lazy like myself, you do an all-in-one, right? I have like, there's a three-in-one now, like body wash, shampoo, conditioner. Yeah, that's something that I would like totally buy. Yeah. But I totally wouldn't use it on a tooth. Yeah. <laughs> so anytime that you can separate chemistries, you're going to have a better result. Because yeah, every, every part of the bonding system can interact differently to, uh, with the material. So, so for instance, like if we talk about just a, a three-step total etch system. So, you, you know, the etch, the dent and less than the enamel, and then you prime the tooth. So the question is, what is the primer doing? So it's a hydrophilic monomer that's able to infiltrate the wet, the wet dent. That makes yeah. sense. And when I say wet, I'm not like saying that you don't, that it's just like spitting out water. Not like that. <laughs> Even when, a, when dent looks dry, it's, you know, much wetter than, than an app. That makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that primer has got a hydrophilic monomer with a hydrophobic end of the, like of, of that, of that yeah. carbon chain. Yeah. And so that hydrophilic monomer is really important. So it infiltrates the dentin. And then what you want to do is you always got to get rid of the, the solvent that's carrying this hydrophilic monomer. Now, the, the most common solvents are ethanol and acetone. If the ad adhesive has a solvent of acetone, it's going to be much more technique sensitive than an ethanol based primer. Okay, interesting. And I think most most adhesives have kind of moved more towards an ethanol, but the the first bonding systems that were really marketed relied heavily on acetone, and you know that's when people say, oh, you know, posterior composites are going to be sensitive. Posterior composites, you know, don't last. That kind of stuff. By using ethanol as the solvent and and water, you're able to um, predictably remove the solvent you know, from that hydrophilic uh, monomer. So is that, is that because the, the ethanol sort of like uh, evaporates easier if you're just air drying it versus like what the acetone used to do or? It, it, yes. So with the acetone ones, you'd have to do like, a, you know, a lot more, more layers. And I don't know if that's more because of the volatility of acetone. I'm not, you know, a perfect expert on that, but I just know that acetone primers are usually a bad thing in your adhesive. Yeah. Okay. I think prime and bond NT was a, is one that relied heavily on that. That was very popular in the U S for a number of years. But, uh, <clears throat> but if you have an ethanol water mixture, you know, the evaporation is much more 
predictable than just an acetone solvent. Yeah. Now I talked about that little hydrophobic end of that, that monomer and the primer, right? Yeah. That, that's just kind of hanging out. That's, that's ready for, you know, when you grabbing the resin on there, which is completely yeah. hydrophobic, you know, so you can actually have a, a chemical free radical reaction when a light is light is placed on it. And so yeah. if you have a primer, that's very hydrophilic, and then you have a, an adhesive that's very hydrophobic that loves the dry. Why would I ever want to have an adhesive that's combined with those two? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, sense. think about it. It's like all of us have seen a vinaigrette and where it's separated, where the oil and the water is separated. That's a perfect yeah. illustration. So, you know, even if you've got this perfectly mixed hydrophilic, hydrophobic vinaigrette bonding system. Yeah. You still have the problem that you have to get the solvent out. Interesting. And so now you're yeah. blowing all this air into your adhesive, trying to, you know, remove the solvent. And if I could, you know, stress it enough, the more you can separate the chemistries, the better your bonding will be. Yeah. I think that's a good principle. It makes sense. So it's tried and true. It's been done for a long time. We've seen good results. Um, so, the, yeah. so the best three step total etch system on the market is still Optibond FL. Yeah. And the FL stands for filled. It's not necessarily for, it's not for fluoride. It's, it's a filled adhesive and it creates a, a thicker interface. And now this is the same thing with the, with self etching systems. So if you're going with a self etching system, the, the acid is mixed with the primer. Yeah. And that's not going to have a negative, negative impact. Um, it will denature the collagen enough that decalcify the uh, the dentin enough that you can get a very predictable hybrid layer and very high bond strength. But the same principle applies. You want to remove the solvent yeah. in in that primer. And so when you're using a self-edge system like SC Bond or SC Protect, those are the two that I would recommend as the the gold standard, which has been proven in the literature to you know be the best as far as consistent bond strengths throughout the, throughout the tooth. And so you air dry the, the water ethanol solvent in, in that primer. And now you're allowed to uh, proceed to create a uniform hybrid layer and a predictable bond to the tooth. Now with the total edge system, you're relying only on micromechanical retention uh, yeah. with the S with a mild self-etch system like SC Bond or SC Protect, there's been some studies out of Japan where they actually showed an ionic bond form with, with, with the calcium ions in the tooth. Nice. So I was going to ask you, that's a good uh, segue quickly just to branch out for a second. Um, in Australia, especially since I've uh, moved back and even in school, like we use a lot of, they use a lot of uh, glass ionomers here, uh, more so than like for sure in Canada, like Canada where I was working, um, not many offices had like, you know, Fuji 2, Fuji 9, Fuji 7, like different uh, glass ionomers, like resin modified glass ionomers. What's the downside of like, and you know, here that even in school we're taught, you know, you can use like a glass ionomer as like a base to like replace dentin and then now on top. Um, and the benefit of the glass armor being that you can like have ionic bonds with the dentin. So it's like a really good bond strength. What's your thought about that? Maybe instead of bonding directly to uh, composite to dentin to do like a intermediately layer with like a glass armor or like a theracal or even or something like a liner bit material. 
So that's a really good question. I think a lot of people miss the boat on this. And <clears throat> we have to know what an ideal or a biomimetic bond is. Mm -hmm. So there was an important published in, in 2004 where Uravi actually did a microtensile bond test of the enamel and the dentin. So okay. he wanted to find out what the DEJ, the bond strength of the DEJ was. Yeah. And he pulled it apart and he found that number to be right around 51, 52. So low 50s, high 40s. Yeah. So if I can get a bond system to 40 to 50 plus megapascals, then I know I have a biomimetic bond. It's lifelike. It's mimicking the DEJ, yeah, which is nature's bond. Yeah. So with Optibond FL, you will get a, a bond strength of 50 plus in a low C factor situation. Nice. With SE bond, it depends on how you prepare the dentin. If you use air abrasion before you bond the tooth, you will get bonds of 50, 50 plus. If you use a diamond, it'll be closer to uh, lower, lower 40s. And that has to do with the thickness of the smear layer that nice. okay. is compacted with, with uh, air abrasion. So that's what I'm always shooting for. That's the goal. The goal is to always have a bond strength of, you know, 40 to 50 megapascals. Yeah. Cause anything beyond that's unnatural. So exactly. you're, you're doing a man-made thing. That's not mimicking what naturally would have occurred. That's a good point. And, I like it. I like it. Well, let's go to like, what, what is glass ionomer bond at or as a modified glass ionomer? Yeah. A lot of people use vitro bond. Well, vitro bond on sound dentin will bond at about 12 megapascals. Wow. Okay. Now with glass ionomers and resin modified glass ionomers, it's such a brittle material and such a weak material. The material will actually, as it uh, hardens, will actually crack and break. So you'll actually have, you know, glass ionomers still kind of, you know, bonded to the tooth, whereas the rest of the glass ionomers kind of separated from itself. Yeah. So, so in my mind, you know, glass ionomers are unnecessary. Resin modified glass ionomers are kind of the worst of both worlds because it has the shrinkage of resin and it doesn't have the, the fluoride release of, of uh, glass ionomer. But if I'm trying to mimic the natural tooth, I would never put glass ionomer as a base or a liner okay. because it just doesn't bond as well as a gold standard adhesive like Optibond FL or SE Bond or SE Protect. Now we're going, we're, we're going to go deep, man. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I can, I can talk days for this stuff. All right. So you've, uh, so, I, I wanna, so what I wanna... do we establish as the biomimetic bond? Yeah. So it's going to be 50 high forties to low fifties, uh, megapascal. So you wanted the DJ. Um, so that's what you want your composite dentin junk, like, uh, union. That's what I want my restoration to bond at. I want yeah. that to you know, 50 megapascals. Yeah. And that's, that's as good as nature. So you'd be happy. That's as good as nature. <laughs> yeah. So now the question is how do I keep 50? Yeah. Cause you know, it's, it's nice to have something be, you know, perfectly ideal. How often in the, in practice is a prep ideal? <laughs> Depends who's doing it. So. Uh, for me, maybe half the time, I'll be happy with that. If, you, if it's half the time, you're, you're doing way better than most. I would say that like 0% of it is like, yeah? you know, super ideal. Okay. I guess well, it depends on your definition of ideal as well. But 
So, so the next question is, how are we bonding to, to decay? Yeah. Because that's what we're really doing as a, as a dentist, right? We're treating decay. And in certain instances, you know, I don't want to remove all the decay. You've seen enough of my Instagram accounts that show. Yeah. Hey, you don't want, not at the expense I, I'm, of I'm leaving, I'm leaving a ton. Yeah. So the question is, if I'm leaving affected dentin or infected dentin, how much is that compromising that 50, that, that bond of 50 megapascals, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm doing a class two, it's deep. I'm always using caries detecting dye. Yeah. Now it's a big pet peeve of mine when people down, downplay the importance of it, because the only way to really know what the, what your bondable structure is, is through caries detecting dye. Mm-hmm. You know, the team of researchers out of Tokyo Medical Dental spent a lot of time figuring out how sound dentin bonds to, you know, SE bond, how SE bond bonds to affected dentin, how SE bonds bonds to uh, infected dentin. Yeah. So now I'm no longer going to use those words of infected and affected because the inventor of caries detecting dye is Takao Fuziyama. And Takao Fuziyama invented caries detecting dye. He was also the first person to actually bond to dentin. Yeah. So he's important. Yeah. But he had a dental student ask him, he's like, oh, I'm really check my prep. And the, you know, Dr. Fuziyama said, well, go until it's hard. We've all heard that, right? Yeah. Now the student was very smart. He said something along the lines of Fuziyama sensei, how hard is hard? Yeah. <laughs> how many of us have felt that way? Yeah. Now, if there was a, a technology that could show you exactly where is hard, where is kind of hard and where is, you know, super soft. I think that would be super valuable for a beginning dentist, right? For sure. I think it's super valuable for a very experienced clinician. I see a lot of cases and I'm like, if I put caries detecting dye, I know that I would have decay in a very important area of the tooth that I want to keep that 40 to 50 megapascal range. Yeah. And it, you know, in their mind, it's like, oh, it's hard. I I scraped around. Mm -hmm. I took my slow speed and it wasn't cutting very much. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of times where I'm, you know, putting the, you know, my caries indicator. I'm like, oh, I think I've got it all. Yeah. It's like, I'm glad I put that last coat on. So Fuziyama said, you know, there's different areas of the tooth and, you know, sound superficial dentin is very easy. It doesn't stain. Now, when it gets light pink or if you're using a green one, light green, or if you're using a blue one, light blue. Yeah. This is termed inner caries. And the reason why I'm using inner caries instead of affected dentin is because this is what the published literature uh, the term, refers it. The terminology is changing a little bit, maybe. And, and, and so inner caries yeah. will bond it, you know, about 30 to 50% less of what sound dentin will bond to. Yeah. You know, so, so what's 30% less of 50? Uh, about 35, yeah. right? That's still like a pretty high number. It's still higher than glass ionomers 12 on its best day, right? But there'll be instances where I do not want to expose the nerve. If I expose the nerve, the chances of a root canal increase three times. Yeah. So I will leave 
outer caries. Now, outer caries is the same as infected dentin. So it's, you know, the collagen framework has been completely demineralized and denatured to the point where, you know, if it does kind of rebound a little bit, it'll never be regain its intact structure like uh, inner caries will. Yeah. Where inner caries just has the hydroxyapatite kind of um, decalcified off of the, the collagen framework, but the collagen framework is, is still intact. And if you can get that tooth resealed, then you'll have remineralization there. So does that make sense? Yeah. So, so we know sound tooth structure bonds at, you know, 50 on a good day. And then inner caries bonds at 30% less. So that's like 35. Now I've shown cases where I'm bonding to outer caries where it's very soft. You could take an explorer, a spoon and you know, it would be, very easy to just expose a nerve Yeah. if I'm going to try to remove all, all decay. And this will bond, you know, anywhere between 60 and 70% of, you know, my initial, my, my initial bond strength. Okay. So, so we're going to do a little bit of arithmetic. So on outer carries, what will be the bond strength if I, you know, have, you know, 70% bond reduction. So you're looking at maybe like 15 range? Yeah, right around 15. Yeah. So even if I'm bonding to the worst worst substrate, it's about as good as glass ion yeah. on its best day, yeah. right? Nice. So so I think we can assume that you know glass ionomer liners, resin modified glass ionomers are unnecessary if you can keep that that seal. Yeah. Right? So we've just talked about this hierarchy of bondability. Now, all of these bonds, bond strengths are on flat surfaces. Now, in your dental school, did they ever talk about C-factor? Uh, yeah. Okay. What's the definition of C-factor? It's like number of sides bonded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ratio of bonded to unbonded surfaces, right? Yeah. So a class one, it has a higher C-factor than a class four, which is you know basically flat. Yeah. So the question is when all these people, all these researchers are doing all these awesome experiments to know what the bond strength is uh, to sound dentin and to carious dentin and to in between carious and sound dentin, you know, what surfaces are they bonding to? Flat, flat surface. Yeah. So why is that? So if you have a low C factor, the bond can only go one way, right? And so if the bond can go only one way as it, as it shrinks, you are going to have no competing elements to the interesting yeah to that so so if you're thinking oh bulk fill is super awesome <laughs> all right you know they i've talked to this representative they talked to me about sure fill they talked to me about you know so, what are some other ones on sdr sonic fill sdr yeah and it's gonna it's gonna make class twos be done in 15 minutes yeah. So what does a bulk fill strategy do to your bond strength if we're just talking about sound tooth structure? So we're talking about 50 again. Yeah. Well, guess what? Some people in Japan actually studied this. They actually, <laughs> you know, did high C factor preps and then they did microtensile bond, bond tests in, in that area. Yeah. What did they find? In a high C factor situation, you lost 50% of your bond strength. In how long? 
24 hours. Wow. So you and then what did they do after that? So you dropped from like they a put, 50 megapascal down to like 25 in 24 hours. Yeah. And that's talking about being on sound Denton and everything. it's like, yeah, you know, everything is perfect. This is going to bond so well. Yeah. I'm using my Optibond FL. I'm using my SC bond. I'm, I'm doing everything right. Yeah. And then you sport in that sure fill. <laughs> what did you do in what in that, in that five minutes? You cut the longevity of the, the restoration in half. Wow. So is this because so like, of shrinkage? So you're pulling at the bond from like all angles and that's what's exactly. So there's a competition of, you know, what way does the tooth, what way does the, the restorative material want to shrink to? Yeah. Now the literature sh- says it wants to shrink towards the best bond. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> and I would also say it wants to shrink towards the quickest forming bond. Now I want you to think about, you know, if you're bonding to something that's totally dry and something that's partially dry, what's going to bond the fastest? You know, if you're putting a sticker on like a wet wall or a drywall. The drywall, yeah. The drywall. So, you know, early on people were like, oh, you know, composites shrink towards the light. Now, a researcher name of Anthony versus Lewis uh, did some studies that prove that wrong. It actually wants to go to the best bond, but where's typically the best bond in a class one prep? Uh, the margins? Or the quickest bond, I should say. Like where's the, the driest surface? The enamel ring. The enamel ring. Yeah. And so everyone gets this idea, oh, enamel bonds are very stable. Denton bonds are actually less stable. It turns out it's you know not not true. If you can allow a Denton bond to mature without competing like with forces on substrates the denton bond will actually bond much higher than enamel because enamel tension the the tension of enamel is only right around 33 megapascals as far as its uh cohesive strength within enamel because the enamel rods will are brittle and eventually we'll just so let me let me like dumb this down a little bit i told you we were going deep. yeah so i made like i'm i'm enjoying it so i just want to make sure it's like uh, applicable and useful for people and and just so you can kind of understand it a little bit better what you're just saying with the let the bond mature that's something that I've, i want to get into with you in, in a second but um it just made me think of those like 3m adhesive uh like wall hooks and stuff they put and they always write down like let it sit for an hour before you load it like hang a towel on it or a picture frame or whatever um i guess it's the same principle you want you've you've bonded it now to the wall uh to itself you want to let that bond mature before you're putting competing forces onto it to take away from that all right so let's uh bring it back to the dental thing now so you've you've uh you've isolated you've got you've removed your caries you've used your caries detector dye you've leave you're leaving a bit a uh, bit of dentin that's carious because you don't want to expose pulp you've done your primer, you've done your bond, you've cured your bond. Is this the point now you're saying, let it sit or you're putting a bit of flow, flowable composite first? Like talk to me about that next step now. Exactly. So, so if you decided to seal the tooth and walk away for two weeks and then go back to it, you've actually increased the bond strength to the, to your, your cavity prep. Yeah. Now, you know, people will talk about immediate dent and sealing. That's immediate dent and sealing. Yeah. If you're doing a direct restoration, everybody does immediate dent and sealing because, you know, that's what they do. Now, why does immediate dent and sealing work so well on indirect restorations? It allows that bond to mature 
un, unimpeded. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause you're not putting, you're not binding on top of it. You're just kind of sitting a temp crown or something. Exactly. So when a, when a material hardens, when you shine the light on something, it takes time for the composite to go through all of its reaction. Yeah. So, you know, early on it, it jumps up super high to, you know, 70% of the polymerization shrinkage is dis- dissipated, you know, right when the light has been shined on it. Now, at a minute, you get another 10% to about like 80, 80% of the, the polymerization shrinkage has been dissipated. Now, at five minutes, you get about 90%. Yeah. 30 minutes, 95%, 24 hours, you're basically at 100% of uh, the polymerization shrinkage uh, limit eliminated. So the question is, if you have these competing entities of, of dryness of the two structures, or the closer you get to the occlusal surface, you know, yeah. you know, the drier it gets, you know, the, the faster that bond um, forms. The question is, is how much can I layer before I start negatively impacting um, the restoration? Yeah. Now, one thing that people will do, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to layer, layer my restoration. Now, how they layer the restoration is very important on how it's actually going to impact the bond strength of the tooth. Now, if you do bulk fill, we can all agree that that's bad. You lose 50% of your bond strength right off the bat. A year of occlusion and function, you lose another 10%, so that's 60%. That's a bad technique. So let's do what the manufacturer says. And what does the manufacturer usually say? Like two millimeter increments. Two millimeter. Yeah. So I got a, I got a class two. It's four millimeters deep. I'm going to go two millimeter, two millimeter, done. I'm going to be done in 30 minutes. I'm going to go sit. For me, it's a Mountain Dew. If you're <laughs> not a Mormon, it's probably a coffee or whatever. <laughs> and pat myself on the back for, for doing a good job. Yeah. You know, I layered. Well, guess what? People actually studied what the bond strength is if you do two millimeter, two millimeters. And guess what? The bond strength is similar to a bulk fill technique. Wow. Yeah. Just slightly better. And so the question is, why is that? Now, the, the researcher that, that showed this is Nikolenko, and this was a very important paper. It's super cool. But he, but he did a bunch of layering techniques. So he did, you know, four one millimeter layering techniques. He did two two millimeter layering techniques. He did oblique, he did vertical, and he yeah. tested the bond strengths on all these. And the one that he found that was the best, after what I've just told you, can you maybe guess? Probably the oblique. Now, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, the oblique, that would be, that'd be awesome. Uh, it was a vertical, there's less C factor. Wait, wait. That's, that's true to a sense. So if you're going oblique, you know, maybe you're only bonding to two walls in a, in a, in a sense. Now, I want you to think about what the C factor is if you're going a very thin layer, a horizontal thin layer of the ratio of bonded to unbonded. So on a class two. So you're doing a very, very thin layer. So I guess it only counts as, I mean, I realistically it's going to be like one, two, three, four, but realistically it's just one, which is the floor of the prep. Exactly. So the surface area is still low. It's still a low C factor increment. Yeah. Whereas an oblique could still be a low C factor, you know, in theory. But what is it connecting? It's connecting deep bonds to high, higher bonds. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And if I want to protect those deeper areas with the preparation, I don't want to have it touching any of the 
higher spots. Higher spots. Yeah. And so when my dad started teaching this, he, you know, maybe invented the term. I don't know. <laughs> but he called it decoupling with time because bonds take time to form. And yeah. if I can decouple my deep, my bonds deep in the prep from the bonds that are uh, closer to the occlusal surface, then I have a much higher likelihood of keeping the tooth sealed. And so the, the four horizontal increments double the bond strength compared to a bulk fill or a, a, a so if you do, so if you have a four millimeter box, like you said, if you do four, one millimeter increments, that'll give you the most ideal um, exactly. longevity. What was, what was even more important is he also compared those bonds to the four increments of oblique and the four increments of vertical. And yeah. guess what? It still beat those because it okay. decouples slower maturing bonds from quick, quick forming bonds. Okay. So let's, uh, let's do this practically. So you, you've cut a class two, you've got your rubber dam, everything's good. You've primed it. You've, um, you know, uh, evaporated the solvent. You've put your bond on, cured that. Are you, what's your protocol after that? Now you've got the hybrid layer, hybrid layer there. Do you put flow, like a little bit of flowable to line it first? Do you go straight to composite and do your one millimeter increment now? Uh, talk to me about that first next step after you've done your bonding. So everything I do, I, I want to have a, a piece of literature tied to my technique. Yeah. Now it's really important that you feel that comfortable that you can actually cite, you know, the paper that this is the reason why I'm doing something. Yeah. And so what I do next is I resin coat the, the dent and the researcher that, that showed that was Jaya Saria. Okay. And she had to learn Japanese to get her PhD. She's from Indonesia. No way. <laughs> but anyway, nice. <laughs> uh, she showed that if you resin coat uh, the dentin over your adhesive, so a thin layer of flowable, less than one millimeter, and then bond uh, an indirect restoration on top of that, that when you pulled it apart, the failure mode would happen at the, the flowable and the restored, the indirect restoration. So basically the, the dentin is perfectly sealed still, you know, you failed, yeah. but the dentin is sealed. And so is that really a critical failure? No. So this is something good that we would shoot for. This is what we call a secure bond. Yeah. When my dad gave me this paper in the, in the basement and this was before I was in dental school, I was still in undergrad. He's like, read this. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I read, <laughs> read it and I tried to, you know, paraphrase what it was. And he totally got me. I totally missed the boat. No, don't make that mistake. Yeah. So if you resin coat with a, a micro hybrid flowable, you will create a little weakening of the, the bond of your, your restoration from the, the flowable and create uh, a secure bond. I think that's advantageous. So when you, and, yeah. Yeah. So since you know the numbers, um, so you said the ideal bond from, your hybrid layer to composite is about 50, which is mimicking the DJ. What's the bond strength of the flowable liner that you've put on now and the composite you put on top so of that's it? So a, that's a good question. So in this paper, what they did is they, they, took a, they took a bunch of teeth, they did some direct restoration, and they pulled them apart. And they, and they failed at about 45 yeah. megapascals. Sweet. That's, you know, what okay. we want. That's not bad. 
Yes, pretty So good. now what they did is yeah. they did a media den ceiling and then they resin coated the prep and then they cemented their their onlay with Panavia and they were pulling apart and the numbers were right around 27. But the failure was never at, the, at, the, at the tooth, tooth bond, bond junction. Ju- junction. So the question is, what was the tooth bonded at? Is it 27? Interesting. Where, where it failed? Or is it bonded probably at the 45, which the directs were having, but the failure mode kept the, the dent completely sealed? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. So that's, a secure, that's a secure bond strategy. And nobody teaches this. So do you think, so if, to make it practical again, so if you, you've done this immediate dent and sealing, you've done the flowable layer to get that base. If there is leakage in your class too, is it, is it happening between the junction of your composite on top of the flowable? Does that make sense? Like, is that where you would see recurrent decay? I mean, recurrent like leakage, um, like, or is it just gone altogether? Because the, the bacteria doesn't have access to the dentin. Like, it's exactly. So when people say, "Oh, I don't want to layer my my fillings," so I'm gonna do, you know, I'm gonna use my SDR bulk fill because I don't want voids and I don't want gaps. I want to do, uh, you know, a big thing that people are talking about is injection molding injection molding technique yeah because they don't want any voids or gaps in their class two yeah and can you get decay between two layers of composite no or between ceramic and and composite no no right so is that even a really important thing to focus on (laughs) no no, that's not I would say no. The only thing that I'm worried about is keeping my dentin sealed. If I can keep my dentin sealed, then I don't have recurrent decay. I don't have to go back and redo my work in, you know, four to six years and, you know, create more dentistry. If I can stop it initially, then that's the best thing. That's great. So, so if I'm resin coating and then I'm uh, continuing to fill with a direct, uh, the bond strength should still be right around uh, 45. But if, you know, there were a failure to happen. I would want it to happen at my flowable layer. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's I want a high, high way. Okay. So I want to get into a couple of... Um, like, I, I got one, yeah, go for one it. more caveat on that. Sure. So I'm sorry. That's all right. But if you're using Optibond FL, the thickness of the adhesive is about 80 microns, whereas SE Protect, SE Bond is 40 microns. And so it's more important to resin coat if you're using... SE bond rather than Optibond FL. Optibond FL also showed that secure bond strategy where it, where it failed, the adhesive thickness acted kind of like that flowable layer. Okay, interesting. So that's something you wouldn't have to do. With, um, uh, when I used Optibond FL in Korea, I did that. You know, I I still I still resin coated. Yeah. All right. Let right, continue on. All right. Sorry. So what I want to ask is. Obviously, we talked about it already, but I just want to make sure we nail down for people and for myself, like what it entails. So when you talk about immediate dentin sealing, does that include just prime and bond cured? Or does it include the resin flowable um, one millimeter layer as well? So if you're using Optibond FL, yeah, um, it's just, you know, just it, it can be as simple as just the adhesive. Okay. If you're using SE, SE bond, I would say that you would want to resin coat 
because the the thickness of the adhesive could be subjected to some oxygen inhibition. So it would be better to still resin coat before you took your impression um, or scanned your uh, okay. scan for a, a CEREC, that okay. kind of stuff. So the next question I have then is um, you talked about the maturing of the bond and at how at five minutes is pretty much 90%. So is that something that you'd be pretty happy with? So say you've done your immediate density sealing for a class two, You've, I mean, you've done your bonding, you've put your resin coat. If you wait five yeah, minutes... So, so immediate end sealing should only be referred to when you're indirect. doing semi-direct or indirect restoration. Yeah. If we're talking just about a class two... Okay. Uh, just bonding. Birth, uh, yeah. This is your bond. Okay. So you've done your bond. Is it worthwhile then to wait at least five minutes for the, the bond to mature a little bit before layering your composite? Has that been shown at all to be useful or beneficial? So I'll ask you that, that same question. Do you think that would be useful? I think so. Now that you've mentioned the numbers, like <laughs> if you're waiting five minutes and you get 90%, like maybe 24 hours is a bit ridiculous, like in feasibility terms, like bring the patient back, whatever. But five minutes to get 90% strength, I think that'd be, you can manage that probably. Yeah. Yeah. So like, let's talk about practicality. Let's say, you know, you're running behind. We're both relatively new clinicians. I'm super slow. You're probably slow. So anyways, we get behind. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing a really deep class two restoration, you know, the, the tooth is borderline, maybe needing endo. And so you, you clean up the, the decay. You maybe leave a little bit near, near the nerve. You know that that'll bond less than, you know, where it's clean. And, oh man, I, you know, I could hurry and finish this up in, in five minutes. I've just put down my, my adhesive, you know, I'll just, get the person out of the door, you know, my next patient's already here. Or I could put my adhesive, maybe put a little bit of flow. And then I'm just going to put, you know, some pink triage there. And I'm going to have the patient come back, you know, in two days. Yeah. What do you think will happen to the bond? What's the best thing for the patient actually? To come back in two days. If you're not going to be waiting at least five minutes. Yeah. And so DDA Dici did a beautiful study on this where he talked about delayed composite (laughs) placement. So he was actually doing, you know, class twos and he was waiting a day before he was finishing it. And then he'd pull them apart. And what did he find in those? Those teeth that he waited the day had less micro leakage than those that he did it, you know, layered that, that day. Yeah. And, and so by allowing the, the bond to mature, you know, you have less, less defects. Now, how many dentists would do that? I've done it a couple of times. I, I know my, my dad's done it. <laughs> uh, but I don't think a lot of people do that. Definitely. But I think it, it's, it's something that you could use, you know, on a routine basis. And, you know, you can charge them whatever you want to charge them, you know, for that initial visit. And then, you know, charge them for the, the, the final restoration, whether you do it yeah. indirect or if you just build it up direct. But it's the science shows that that is beneficial to the bond strength of the tooth. So I think, but that's, I mean, I'm just, my, my brain's kind of just like racing here. I'm just thinking of different things. So I think that's another potential sided benefit that you can tell your patient about like doing indirect because you're going to seal it. You're going to send the impression off to the lab, or even if you're going to mill it in the house with Sarek, by the time that's all that's done, like you've scanned it, you've milled it, stained it, blah, blah, blah. Like the bond's maturing all this time. So 30, 40 exactly. minutes. So it's a much better bond strength than you would have had with just a direct filling. Um, unless you're going to wait anyways. Uh, absolutely. That's awesome. And so, uh, 
you know, there's been some nice studies that show, have you ever heard of post gel shrinkage? Post gel shrinkage? No. No, no, no. So, so this is, this is a new thing. So yeah, we've talked about how, you know, your adhesive takes, you know, 24 hours to fully mature. Yeah. Right. Well, what is composite? It, you know, it, it's basically the same chemistry as your adhesive and in, in rough terms, right? The, you know, you're using free radical react to make something hard and, you know, it sh typically shrinks, you know, anywhere between 1.5 and, you know, four and a half percent, depending yeah. on the component you're using. And so the question is, do your, do your resins suffer from the same polymerization curves as your adhesive? Interesting. So what would you, what would you assume? I'd say yes. <laughs> they do. Exactly. Yeah. And if you have a highly bonded restoration, you know, you've done really good layering protocols and you kept your bond, where does that stress get transmitted to? Is it the junction that the uh, composite meets the tooth or? Yeah. So it gets, it gets, it gets uh, transferred to the tooth. Yeah. So if you're doing bulk fill, when the polymerization shrinkage happens, you know, instantaneously, what ends up happening is, you know, it tries to relieve that, you know, that stress. And it usually delaminates a portion of, of the prep, which isn't good. Yeah. But if you have a perfectly bonded restoration and you use a direct technique, what ends up happening is the bond is so good, it actually will start to strain the residual tooth structure. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. For that 24 hours, that reaction's still kind of going. And so... If you want the most stress relieved restoration, an indirect restoration will be will be the best. Now there are ways with uh, stress reduced direct protocols and fiber placements that allow you to mitigate some of those um, stresses and slow down that that reaction through pulse and progressive cures. But that's something that when you're a fully trained biomimetic dentist, you're thinking about the, the benefit of it. Yeah. It's like, do I want to do this direct or do I want to do, uh, do it indirect or do I want to do it semi-direct chair side, you know? Yeah. But the whole idea is I want the tooth to stay bonded. You know, if the, if the stress gets transferred to the, the tooth structure, you know, maybe you get a small crack line in, into enamel because the, there isn't enough dentin to, to, give it um, some, some flexibility and some toughness. Does that make sense? So you're pulling in the, so say if like in a class two, again, you pull or a large MOD, you're putting in the buckle and lingual cusp, we're kind of straining in a little bit. So you're putting flexor, yeah, so like, you have like a very, very thin, uh, buckle and lingual sh enamel shell. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I want to keep as much two structure as possible. You know, what would be the, the best way to not have, stress be transmitted over to the, um, through the tooth, it would probably be an indirect or a semi-direct restoration. Yeah. Now, you know, if you wanted to do some intricate layering, uh, strategies, you could still do that, but you might see some, some fatiguing of the, of the enamel yeah. on these really extreme cases on, you know, extreme cases, I would probably say, you know, on lay that cut. Yeah. Save yourself the hassle. You'll lower, you'll lower the C factor, blah, blah, blah. Um, but these are the things that are constantly turning in my head. It's like, you know, what, 
what's my bond? What's my initial bond? Yeah. You know, what am I fighting? Am I fighting inner or outer carries that are going to weaken my bond strength? Am I fighting C factor stresses that can negatively impact my bond strength? Am I fighting residual two structure that I still have left that, you know, may be adversely affected? Yeah. So to avoid a lot of this indirect would, will solve a lot of it, right? Because the, the restorative material itself is not going to be shrinking. It's not going to, so it's going to be a stable thing that you put in uh, at the time exactly. of bonding. If you, you've seen a couple of my cases where I did a semi-direct composite. Yeah. I want to talk there, to you about that too. We'll get into that. Like, they're they're uh, super cool. They're super fun. Yeah. Um, but anyway, if I'm doing all of the polymerization outside of the mouth before I uh, cement my, my onlay, that material is going through its polymerization reaction separate from the polymerization reaction of my immediate dent and sealing and resin coating, correct? Yeah. And so that's going to have less, uh, less negative outcome as far as residual stress or post-gel shrinkage. Yeah. Now, if you're doing Emacs, you know, ceramic doesn't sh- shrink. Yeah. After you shine the light on it. <laughs> and when you, when you fire it, it probably does a little bit. Yeah. But that's, that, that's beyond the point. Yeah. But you're only dealing with the, your, the shrinkage of your cement at that point. Yeah. And so an indirect restoration will always be the most stress reduced restoration possible. Okay. So that's, um, there's a couple other sort of, uh, like buzzwords in biomimetics that you see on Instagram a lot, or definitely on your page and other biomimetic pages as well. And I kind of want to touch on those before we sort of, um, move on is, and I think they're kind of related and what's, and maybe we've already touched upon some of them is bio base and like deep margin elevation. Okay. So, so bio base is a totally made up word. It comes from my dad, kind of evolved from my dad's teaching program. Yeah. One of his uh, partners, Wendell Robertson, you know, came up with some, some terms such as, you know, the bio base or the bio rim. So the bio rim, we'll start with the bio rim, sorry. So bio rim is two millimeters of enamel above the CEJ. This is where all of the forces of occlusion are being transferred to. Yeah. So I can't remember who first said bio rim, if it was Wendell or my dad. Um, but eventually, you know, that's basically your prep right before you're ready to, to bond. And so if you have a bio rim, as the tooth is under function, it's going to be able to withstand the forces of occlusion much better than a crown will, where all of that is being forced right at the margin. Yeah. And so uh, the bio base refers to the media dense ceiling, your resin coating, and if you blocked out any of your undercuts and undercuts. Yeah. So, so that's the difference. So the bio base goes on the bio rim. There's not an actual base or liner that is used in, in that, in that traditional term. But, uh, so these kind of terminologies are very common among people that my dad has trained. He teaches with Dr. Matt Najad, a biomimetic dentist, yeah. uh, dentistry CE. So these are terms that we use just like people use just common day things. I, it's stuff I take for granted, but when I say that, it's like, 
what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so the bio base is pretty much the tooth is ready to receive its restoration, be it uh, direct exactly. or indirect. So everything's done. Everything's ready to go. Um, you're just going to put in the restoration now. And so now, so now we'll, we'll tie that into deep margin elevation yeah. or gingival margin elevation. So this was first introduced in 1998 by DDADG and uh, Robert uh, Sprayfico in uh, PPAD. And they said, you know, we don't necessarily have to always have the restoration sit on sound two structure. There are instances where it might be advantageous to, to elevate a margin so it becomes super gingival. Mm-hmm. And... You know, this is all this is all theory in '98, and you know, my father he reads a lot. He read that paper, and he was restoring some endo, endodontically treated teeth, or he was getting ready to do endo. And on certain instances where you have you know a deep uh, a deep box, and you don't want bleach to go down, you know, yeah. out of the chamber, you know, what would be a smart idea to do? You know, maybe elevate that margin a little bit and then access. Correct? Yeah. And so that's what he started doing. He started to elevate these margins and then access and, and do the do the root canal. And you know, this is in the early 2000s for my father. And at a time, he's like, "Well, why am I going to go and grind this all the way down?" You know. Yeah. In theory, it's still bonded well. You know, the endo's done. The hard part's done. Sometimes gingival margin elevation is the hardest part that you're doing. Yeah. And so he's like, "Well, I'm just going to start keeping it." And so we started teaching in 2005, you know, these techniques that eliminate crowns um, from a general dentist practice. He, he called it raising the box. Yeah. And, you know, that's what he referred to it for, for quite a while. And then Pascal Magne, who was uh, the predecessor of DDA Dici, he wrote a very nice paper with uh, uh, Spray Fico again, uh, showing gingival margin elevation. And I think that's where, uh, let me just let me just pull it up really quick. I don't want to screw up the yeah the title. It's important to to get people's to get the correct uh, verbiage, I guess yeah. you would say. Now, this has been great. I've, I've written down a lot of notes here. I'm just kind of looking at everything now. What percentage of dentists do you think actually like think about this stuff? I would say zero. Yeah. I'm the only person who might be crazy <laughs> enough to be thinking about this stuff. Well, maybe my dad. Yeah, but do you think like? Doctor yeah, there's about I would say there's about 500 in the world that are thinking like this. Wow, uh, in in some some regard, and they they've either been trained by Pascal Magne or uh, my father or Didi or uh, Matt Najad. Yeah, and you know they're thinking about these things because they tie each technique with a piece of literature. Yeah, and I think you know with our conversation that we've had. I've stressed the importance of not just saying, oh, it works great in my hands. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I saw it on Instagram. So-and-so did it. Let me try it. Uh, which, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I myself, like I'll admit, like I'm not a big like paper reader. Because um, I just... No, but you need to yeah. connect with somebody who is. And That's if you connect thing. with somebody who yeah. is and get trained by him, and it's like, I don't have to read all those dumb journals. I just have to make sure that that guy's reading all those dumb journals. <laughs> That's the whole point of the podcast, man. I just... Uh, I'm too lazy to like learn myself. So I just seek out people who know what I want to learn and I just talk to them and I pick up notes and, and hopefully it, it rubs off on me and I get better as well. But uh, I appreciate it. That's awesome. So the, the one thing that I mean, I've, there's some debate back and forth. I talked to a few like prosthodontists and they're, they're not like a bit iffy on the whole deep margin elevation thing is. So say if you're, you're sitting um, an onlay 
on resin instead of tooth structure. Based on the literature that you've, I mean, you're reading and you're hearing, where is the failure occurring? Is it the same as you said with like direct restorative, where if the composite fails, the the base layer is still sound? So if well, exactly, so that's where I wanted to fail. If if it fails, I want the the tooth to be still bonded. Yeah. So I've had one D bond, um, and I learned a lot from it. So when I was in Korea, you know, I you know, did a nice onlay prep, you know, did my immediate dent sealing, did my protocols very, uh, very nicely as best as I could. And, you know, I get the onlay back, the patient's going to come back and I'm like, okay, clinic, do we have any hydrofluoric acid? Do we have some silane? You know, I want to, you know, make sure I bond yeah. my Emax well. And they're like, no, we don't have any of that in the, in the clinic. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's not great. <laughs> so I call the lab. I'm like, Hey, you know what, you know, did you guys, you know, pre-treat it? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 you're good. You know, yeah. you're good. I was not good. <laughs> <laughs> so what ended up happening is, uh, you know, the manufacturer's directions with Emacs is, you know, etch with 5% phosphoric, uh, hydrofluoric acid yeah. for 20 yeah. seconds, correct? Now, in this lab, they didn't have 5% uh, hydrofluoric acid. So what did they use? They used their 95 and in their minds, it's like, well, what's the best thing to do? What's 10 seconds, <laughs> 10 seconds. Exactly. Yeah. And so they treated it that way. You know, I silenated it, you know, I bonded it and, you know, about, I would say it was like four months. The guy was eating a now and later and, you know, popped it off. Yeah. And it's like, you know, no one likes to see their failures. I didn't like seeing my failure, but it was like, where, where was the mistake? And so what I ended up doing, I went and on PubMed, and I looked for literature to, to figure out what's the time frame that I needed to etch Emacs if I don't have 5%. Yeah. Because I went to the lab after that and I'm like, give me that 9.5 that 9. and let's figure this out. Yeah. I'm going to etch it myself. I'm not going to trust you guys. And what did the literature show? It needed to be etched similar to Feldspathic porcelain. So 60 seconds uh, was able to get you know a bond of the Emacs, you know, at, at around 40, 40 megapascals. So 60, even with 5% uh, hydrofluoric, you should be doing 60 seconds instead of the recommended. No, so 5% still go by the manufacturer's direction. Yeah. Uh, you go 20 seconds. Yeah. Now with 9.5%. It's so counterintuitive. It's weird. It's very counterintuitive. Yeah. And I can see where the lab made the mistake and, you know, I should have, you know, figured, figured it out, but I became better because I went and looked up my mistake. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my grandfather was a, a new PhD physicist, yeah. <laughs> uh, worked on sonar nice. and my dad, he, he was a surf bum and, you know, he, he was doing physics classes and he would ask his dad about, you know, a physics question. And yeah. you know, my grandpa who died, you know, when I was just, just after I was born, he would always say, go look it up. Yeah. That's not what my dad wanted to hear. <laughs> But, you know, if you look it up yourself, if you kind of it put in that, yeah, it sticks with you more. Yeah. And so some people will listen to this podcast. They'll get, they'll get something out of it. They'll probably forget a lot of it. But if they invest in actually mastering these techniques, it'll stick with them. Yeah. You know, that was the only paper that I paid for. <laughs> Usually I go down to my dad's basement and say, hey, I'd like, you know. Yeah. So there are yeah. So, but anyways, I, I learned from my mistake in it. That's the best way for sure. Um, so, 
But if you have 9.5, etch for 60 seconds. It's just, it makes no and sense. Then silent eight, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we'll take your word for it based on the, the paper. Um, so let's, let's quickly touch on, I just want to see, I mean, you're, you're, pretty, you're right in there. You're practicing as a biomimetic dentist. Where do you see like the you know, next five years, uh, where it's going to be going? Um, is there going to be changes in like the trends of what is being taught in school even? Um, what's the infiltration of this biomimetic style of dentistry going to be in the next five years? Well, I think you have to go back to where it originated, and that is University of Geneva in Switzerland. So, you know, a long time ago, they decided, hey, we're not even going to teach amalgam anymore. Yeah. So if we're not going to teach amalgam, they weren't the first one to, to stop teaching amalgam. But they were, they were one, of the, one of the first, and it's like, well, we got to get better at our adhesive protocols. Yeah. I mean, most people don't want a big chunk of silver in their, in their mouth or mercury. If you, you know, if you really break it down, yeah. about 50. Uh, but so they stopped teaching GB black principles. And then eventually they got, they got crazy enough to say, you know, this adhesive dentistry is working well enough that, you know, maybe we don't have to cut teeth down for crowns. And so university of Geneva now it's over a decade. They don't have any requirements for, you know, teeth to be cut down for crowns. Yeah. For traditional crowns. Now, what is University of Geneva produced? Some of the best dental researchers and clinicians in the world. So I've said DDA Dici a couple of times. Pascal Manier is, yeah. you know, right there. He's the one that basically proved that immediate dent sealing quadruples your bond strength. Now, if you can quadruple your bond strength and get your indirect restorations to bond at a similar strength as, as the DJ of the tooth, we don't need retentive preps, correct? Yeah. I mean, the only reason to cut a tooth down for a crown, you know, my friend said it best uh, in dental school that I had corrupted a little bit. His name <laughs> always He's in New Mexico. Yeah. Anyway, he, he said the only reason to cut a tooth down for, for a crown is retention. Now, if you can bond a tooth, do you need mechanical retention? No. Not in theory. Not in theory. Yeah. Now there's a lot of places you can screw up in your bonding. <laughs> yeah. But I think even I, I've, I've had to shout with a few people and I think, okay, so if it fails, it fails. Like if a crown fails, it's usually pretty bad. Like the core breaks off with it or it's leaking and there's decay underneath. But if your onlay falls off four months later, like it's not the end of the world. If your base is still there, you just clean it. What do I do? Bond it back on. Like it's, I etched it properly with hydrofluoric acid, 9.5 yeah. for 60 seconds, yeah. rinsed it off, you know, etched with phosphoric acid to remove some of this, the, 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 the crystals, the, yeah. the precipitate that formed, you know, rinse that off, silenated, air dried that well, you know, placed, you know, bond, and then, you know, cemented with, uh, you know, a heated composite protocol. Yeah. And it's, you know. and it's still there. And, and it's there. Yeah. So, so when that failure happened, it was a secure bond. The tooth was still sealed. It wasn't the end of the world. When a crown fails, it's always bad. Yeah. It's always bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I placed a clamp on, on a second molar recently and the crown came off, it's like, well, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fixing that tooth wasn't fun. People talk about that. It's like, yeah. I don't want a catastrophic failure. I want a failure that can be easily addressed, you know, right then and there. Yeah. And that's what biomimetic dentistry provides. It, it provides a predictable way to fix 
structurally compromised teeth or teeth that people would say that tooth definitely needs endo and you're able to preserve the tooth vitality you're able to preserve 50 to 70 percent more tooth structure than if you cut the tooth down for a crown yeah i mean it's i mean show, you show a prep to a, a patient like do you want this prep or do you want that prep <laughs> You want more of your tooth or less of your tooth? Yeah. And they're always like, hmm, I think I want more of my tooth. Yeah. I think that's the big thing. I think especially for a new grad, we're still getting comfortable with, you know, case presenting to patients. Uh, Indirect is obviously more expensive than direct. So a lot of people who are like insurance driven or uh, may not have the means. So a lot of new grads are maybe a little bit shy away from present that confidently as like, you need an onlay, you need this versus that. And here's why. So here's the question. If you can do the class two as well as if you did an indirect, what should you charge? You should charge the same fee as an indirect. You should charge the same fee. Yeah. So that should be your goal. It shouldn't be like, well, you know, how do I, you know, present this? Now I'm in the military. Everybody gets whatever, you know, <laughs> I decided is right. They don't have to pay anything. Yeah. One guy, one guy gave me some, some Mountain Dew and some soda. That was great. Um, that was, that was the most, you gotta be discouraging these behaviors, not (laughs) Ah, more cavities you have, the better golf. Yeah. But, but that's how you should be thinking. It's like, if I can stop the dental cycle, I should be getting paid for my time. And if my time is $200 an hour, if it's $400 an hour, if it's, you know, $800 an hour, you know, that's what it should be. Um, I should be charging. And is that feasible for every practice? Of course not. But that's what you should be thinking. That should be the ideal. That should be where you where you because uh, if work you're towards. because if you're making your your adhesive restorations last three times longer than your competitor, you should charge three times more. You should charge three times more. And what's usually three times more? It's pretty close to an indirect restoration, right? Yeah, yeah. that's fair. And I mean, you know, it's it's easy for me to say, oh, you know, I've been out three years. I I've only had one D bond. I've had a, you know, so, so many failures. Now this literature has been, you know, brewing for 25 plus years and it's been taught and practiced, you know, since the, the mid and early two thousands. And so we're getting 10 plus years where we're not having the same kind of failures that we were seeing with traditional dentistry with recurrent decay. Yeah. Uh, post-operative sensitivity, the same rate of endo, all of those negative outcomes that are associated with poorly bonded restorations have been dramatically reduced. Yeah, no, I'm all for it. I think even just seeing the type of work and procedures that you guys are posting up, how much I love, I like the intricacy of it. Like it's a lot of, it's a lot of work to, it's a very technically sensitive procedure, but I can see the benefit of it. You're doing good work. It's going to last longer. So I'm a big fan. I think that's something that over the next you know year or so, as I'm just trying to keep learning more things, more and more things, um, I'm definitely going to invest a bit more time uh, into biomimetic dentistry because I think it's the bread and butter. Like we're restoring teeth all day, every day. So you want to be good at it. You want it to last. You don't want it to fall apart. And I think, yeah, maybe even if you don't make as much money up front because the guy down the street is just doing bulk fill flow, takes them three minutes to do. Um, but you're, you know, you're isolating, you're putting a rubber dam on, you're incrementally like one millimeter thin. It's going to take five times as long, but yeah, eventually if you build up the credential to be like, you know what, I'm going to charge you more. And this is why, because my work lasts longer, this and that, like all and back it up with, uh, with educating the patient. I think that's the way to go. So thanks a lot for today. It was, uh, 
there's a lot. I think it's taking me back to like my dental school days. I'm like trying to remember like, oh yeah, the, <laughs> the side chain does this and like a bifunctional monomer, like this and that, like HEMA. So there's a lot of words that I'm like, oh yeah, it rings a bell. So it's nice to kind of get a re- little review and I'm sure uh, people listening to this as well will will learn a lot. And I think it's just it's just scratching the surface though. Definitely, my, I will be like diving into a bit more deeper, trying to learn more. So I'll definitely hit you up with some papers. Um, if you can actually, if you don't mind putting together like a little list of, five papers that you like absolutely recommend now i'll put it in the show notes so if someone's listening and they want to re- read more they can get those titles that'd be that'd be awesome that'd sure. be great for me as well you know I'd, I'd, I'd love to 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 do that um i think it's really important that anybody that listens to this podcast and this is speaking to them it's like oh i feel guilty every time i cut a tooth down for a crown it's where do i go to get trained to learn these things now this october i'll be going out to beverly hills and i'm gonna you know spend four days with Dr. Najad and my father to reinforce these concepts that I've hopefully communicated, you know, clearly. I mean, I'm not going to get paid for anybody that signs up for it, but I, uh, but I see the, yeah. the value in it. So when I went last October to that course, you know, I told my father, and I told Matt, I'm like, that's the best course I've been to. You know, I've been to a lot of CE. I've read a lot of papers. And as far as you know, taking somebody from square one to being able to be comfortable to bring this into their practice. I haven't found any. What's that better. course called? So biomimetic dentistry ce.com is where yeah. you can find that information. And this is Matt Najad's uh, uh, teaching program where he focuses on posterior teeth. Uh, my father teaches alongside him uh, with the literature review where they talk nice. about a lot of these papers that, yeah. you know, are cited. And I always feel like, if I want to be the best, I want to be surrounded by the best. Now, Matt Najad, he was Pascal Manier's arguably best mm-hmm. student, you know, clinically, you know, and then, you know, he got trained by my father as well, got put in contact with him. And then he started mastering the literature. And it's like every case that he posts, it's like, yeah. I wish I could be as good as him. So if people are like, oh, I wish I could be as good as, you know, you know, Davey Alleman, which I doubt anybody thinks that way because I don't even think I'm that good. But I'm it's the best journey. they got. You'll be the there office, soon. Maybe. You'll be there soon. Kevin would say different. Kevin Lasseter. Um, but I really appreciate you letting me be on. If people want, you know, more information about that course, uh, you know, I'd be more than happy to, to share it. If they want, you know, more, if they have questions about cases that I present, you know, I encourage them to, to ask. I feel like I'm pretty responsive yeah, to definitely. you know comment i know you've asked some questions and you've you've gained a little bit out of it and hopefully i haven't come across not at all man. i think um that was a great podcast a lot of good information there are a lot of i've written down a lot like there's so many things i would never even thought about let alone know the numbers about so i think to start with what i'm going to take away from this uh even just that five minute thing i think if my restorations are 90 percent of their maximum bonk strength like if i can wait five minutes and get that I can wait five minutes. It's like, it's not, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. 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 Go, yeah. Go do, go do something. And when you think about that five minutes, you think about I'm decoupling <laughs> with time. And where did that come from? It yeah. came from David Alleman, not Davey. From David Alleman. The, the senior. Undercover senior. Awesome, man. So what I like to do is uh, just end off on a quick rapid fire just to line things up a little bit. So I'll ask the first question is uh, what's your favorite sports team? And you got an Indian's hat on. So I don't know if that's, this that or, yeah. I have I have an Indian hat. I'm a yeah. I'm an Oakland Athletics fan. They have a tendency to a little money to trade away all their talent. 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, those were good times back in 2000 and uh, what was it, 2006. The Oakland A's. I like their hats. Um, what's your uh, favorite Instagram account to follow? Uh, ooh, that's a that's a good one. If I'm looking at, you know, anterior teeth, you know, I really like, I'll say yeah. Dr. Najat's. I mean, when he's, when he's paying $2,000 a unit yeah. just for the lab fee, you know, they better, <laughs> they better look pretty nice. But, uh, as far as, yeah, that's... you're going to have to edit this a little bit. I'm going to have a lot of dead space. Okay. No well, well, let's come back um, to that one. What is your favorite procedure? A deep class two, class two composite. <laughs> I love doing that. I also, I also like doing, you know, um, yeah. inlay onlays, anything that prevents a crown. I hate doing endo. I don't love, I'm not great with oral surgery. So if I can prevent, you know, that, that's, that's what I love uh, to do. So, so give me a tooth that people was like, I, that tooth needs endo and, and I'll put a little ice on it and they get a response. I'm like, yeah, nice. we're going to save it. Like when you save a tooth. I've done a few lately and I'm like, they come in with like reversible symptoms. I'm like, yeah, we can try and save this. And they come back like a month later, two months later and they're feeling good. You feel nice. It's like you feel good. Yeah, you're their hero. Um, right? What's your so? Yeah. If you can have one matrix system, uh, it could be like the V three rings, like traditional Toffelmeyer. Um, what what would be like one day? Like if you can only use one for the rest of your career, what would you use? So I'm gonna give two because sometimes I'm doing like gingival yeah. margin elevation. Right. You can only use one though. You gotta pick. <laughs> All right. If I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna say I'm gonna sacrifice yeah. my contact. I'm going to go with an auto matrix. I love being able to just push that thing down to the, you know, really deep, tighten it up. It doesn't have the the weight of a yeah. Toffelmeyer retainer. So auto matrix by, uh, by dense plies. Yeah, what I've, I've never used one. Used too. I was, we, we have one in my new price that I'm uh, going to be starting up. So I'll start learning it a little bit, but I'm um, yeah, I'm all like, if I'm doing a margin elevation of source, I'll use like a sub gingival Toffelmeyer band. And then for the contact, I'll go back to like a sectional. Yeah, you, go, you, you can switch over to like any, any sectional is going to work, work well. I, I'm not. Perfect. And the final question for the rapid fire is what's your uh, morning routine? I wake up at around 5.30. Early. Do some yoga. <laughs> Every day? Yeah. So That's pretty good. I've got to maintain my, my flexibility. Yeah. No, just, uh, but, I do, but I do yoga like 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, shower and then I'm at clinic at seven we start so early. We started, i've never been much of a morning person but the army's kind of drilled it into you a little bit ruined yeah. me <laughs> as far as being able to to sleep in yeah. so awesome man appreciate it hey it was a great chat Stop. we'll hopefully do another one uh we'll follow up a little bit later on i think we'll probably have to i i didn't i didn't go too light <laughs> I might have I might have given too much information. Be, yeah, no, I think it's good. If it, if there's, uh, I'm hoping people will reach out to you with some questions. Um, it's always nice to get feedback after an episode. Some people hear back, and uh, some people listen and have some follow up questions, and they want to get. Oh, for sure! Be, like you know, cool. it's been really cool just following your podcast and and then kind of seeing some accounts that I wasn't aware yeah. of. So my favorite golf account to follow is Tony Finau. Golf account, Tony. Yeah, golf yeah. account. My favorite uh, skateboarding account is Bucky Lassie. Oh, yeah? He's still around? He's still around. Yeah, he's not dead yet. That's <laughs> um, like uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater days, Bucky Lassie. Yeah. yeah he, and then as far as a, a dental account, 
Uh, I will say, I'll say my yeah. own. No, just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, a good account. It's not a good. No, I would say, I would say Dr. Najat. I think he's the best dentist in the United That's States. Big. I should, I, I gotta I try think, and if you can introduce us at some point, that'd be awesome if you could come on the podcast. I know he's a busy guy, but uh, it'd be cool. He is a very busy yeah. guy. He's got a very high end practice in Beverly Hills. Yeah. He, he deals with, you know, a clientele that's much different than, than, you know, the army personnel. Mine's like, oh, that looks white and it doesn't hurt. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And his is like, you know, higher end, but, you know, I think if you want to really strive for that kind of excellence, you need to have that kind of uh, attention to detail. Yeah. And then Biomimetic Study Club uh, run by Jeff Davies. He's a great also, guy. I've had a chat know, with like, him as well. He's, uh, he's, uh, I think he's starting that course now too. I think he's working on something that just recently launched. But, so. Yeah, yeah. so there's, he's kind of associated with, you know, with a lot of the mover, movers and shakers. Yeah. And, you know, I think he'll be a good person to connect with as far as, you know, someone who's got a pulse on, on where it's yeah. going. And, uh, and then I got to give a shout out to uh, Caleb Stott. His, his Instagram account is Clib Jong Il. And he's the one that told me, hey, Davey, <laughs> you, should, you should do an Instagram account. You do really good dental work. <laughs> and I told him, uh, I think it's just for food. And he's like, no, <laughs> you should do it. So anyway, without him, there would be no me and there would be no uh, podcast. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I love your page. And I think there needs to be more people just and that's something that i try and do because obviously like there's a lot the madden jobs of the world the apples of the world they're going to be posting their stuff because it's just like it's art it's not it's not even yeah it's, it's totally yeah. art so hopefully i'm like on the opposite it's side like dentistry of, like you're you doing know, daily dentistry and you're posting about it at a high dentistry, level yeah but, but the science is exactly where he's yeah. coming from. i think that's that's so, so cool if i can inspire that you know you can be inspired by the the artistic side and you know hopefully you get clientele that will pay that but if you're in the army and you know you're doing dentistry for you mainly yeah. you know you can take a lot of joy in you know something being very functional yeah i think that it's two-pronged right like you need to have job satisfaction too. take pride in like what you're doing at work that's important to keep you motivated to keep you coming back day after day kind of like if you're just in if you're Absolutely. just in there for like dentistry, i need to dentistry is a yeah grind. if you're just yeah. you, gotta find the, you gotta find those little victories so like you know that case you posted with that was a difficult anterior isolation yeah. case, you know, find and enjoy that your dam was, you know, good enough. <laughs> you know, I've had days where it's like, that dam was yeah. good enough. I th- I, I'm, I'm pretty bad still. I mean, I'm, I'm just starting out. I'm just trying to take things a bit more seriously and kind of get better. But uh, at the same token, I'm like a lazy, lazy clinician. I feel like a lot of times I'm just like, ah, it's good hey, enough, but I, just, I need to stop that. If you're doing a good, if you're doing a slit dam and you got, you know, you know, good, good matrixing, you're going to have adequate isolation, yeah. but the key is you got to know what the polymerization of your bonding materials are. <laughs> so when people get really excited about, you know, dental dam pornography, yeah. uh, you know, realize that maybe you don't need the nth degree of isolation, but if you have a slit dam and, you know, you know, good isolation, right. When you're bonding the yeah. tooth, you, know, you can deal with a little bit of contamination later on and still have that seal to the yeah. tooth. So don't yeah. beat yourself up if your dam tears. <laughs> Although sometimes that does ruin my day. It is annoying though. You've so. gone through all the work. It's super annoying. And then, yeah. I think pre-wedging is like key for that too because you don't want the, the dam in, in approximately to tear off. So that's, that's annoying. Especially when it's like, oh, that dam is so nice. And then all of a sudden you're like... <laughs> my you're pictures like, are ruined. Oh. 
It's all for the Instagram. <laughs> and then it's like, I'm taking pictures. It's like, well, do I replace the yeah. dam? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It comes to your threshold of what's good enough, I guess. But awesome, man. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I've kept, I've kept hey, you long enough you here. So much. I'll, I'll really I'll appreciate get this out over the next few cool. weeks. Um, and yeah, this is a great chat, man. I know we've been, I've been, I think we started this chat like four months ago. I was like, oh, you should come on. And then I moved here and got a bit busy with things. So I'm happy it finally happened. And it was a definitely a great chat. Hey, it's, it's been, it's been really nice. Cause I feel like I have been able to get to know you a little bit better by just, you know, following your, your podcast and listening to all of your guests yeah. and, you know, all of them bring something different and all of them bring something that's important to the, um, to the table. And, you know, I think we all learn from, from each other and, you know, I think I'm pretty smart, but there are people that are smarter than me. And, you know, there are people that are definitely better overall dentists than, than me. Yeah, so that's good, man. We all, we're all trying to get better. We're trying to learn from each other, like you said. Um, and that's the way to go. So thanks again. So, so sorry for like just talking your ear <laughs> off. I can, I can go forever. It shows so you're passionate. Hopefully. It's good. When you're passionate about a subject, you can t- keep talking about it. Right. So 